Hello, Damien Carrick with you. Welcome to The Law Report. In the final of our summer series, where we revisit some of our favourite programs, we ask a question. Should dead men become fathers? It sounds like a trick question. It's impossible, right? Well, in this day of artificial reproductive technology... It does happen, and it happens more often than you might think. In fact, there are a whole series of court cases around Australia devoted to the question, should sperm be removed from a corpse and given to a grieving spouse? And a warning, we will be discussing issues around suicide today. They're morally and ethically difficult questions, and they involve the main constituents of all great drama, which is sex and death. And those things are not easy to legislate. We're dealing with an area of law that just has not been fully canvassed in Parliament as of yet. Consequently, there's no uniformity with the laws throughout Australia. They've ranged from situations where the man has died because of a car accident, of a work accident or of a sporting accident. As you are about to hear, there are a surprising number of cases where men die unexpectedly and their partners rush to a court to ask a judge for permission to extract sperm from a dead body. David Rewo is the director of Aidan Lawyers in Toowoomba, Queensland. At 11pm on the 24th of August 2016, David received an urgent telephone call from a young woman named Ayla Creswell. Her partner, Joshua Davies, had just ended his own life. She called me on this particular night, and I recall we had our initial conversation about 11, 11.30 at night. She basically had her partner who had recently passed away, and she was expressing an interest in applying to the court for orders to extract her partner's sperm for possible IVF purposes in the future. We essentially got Ayla to come into our office about 12.30, 1 o'clock, and we started the legal process. And you had to line up all your ducks uh, at very short notice. Uh, what, What did you have to do briefly? Look, in these type of applications, and we're always under the gun for time, because essentially one must try to perform the operation 24 hours after death. So we were really under the gun. I think her partner passed away about six o'clock that morning. So we essentially only had six, maybe 12 hours to do everything that we needed to do. So firstly, we took statements, affidavits from Ayla and some family members. I think we made contact with the court about 3am and we had the court open about 4am and we ended up sitting before the judge about 4.30 that morning. After we presented our case to the judge, we ended up having our order at about 5.30, 6am that day. Let's take a step back. Tell me about the relationship between Ayla Creswell and her partner, Joshua. When did they first meet? Look, it would have been a couple of years beforehand. They were in a de facto relationship and having children was something that they had definitely spoken about. They had made plans. Um, Ayla had already spoken to her general physician in relation to having having a child in the future. And they were talking about the financial burden, the financial responsibilities, keeping their parents involved in such discussions because they were talking about babysitting requirements. Ayla had spoken to her employer in relation to leave requirements of having children. So it's something that they had definitely considered, but unfortunately, due to circumstances, I guess their plans were cut short. Joshua actually ends his own life, doesn't he? That is correct, yes. And was that a surprise? Definitely. No indication, no warning to any family members. It was a complete surprise to everybody. So you secure 
the legal okay to extract the sperm and have it frozen. But that was only the first step. There was a second legal step, and that was obtaining permission to transfer the stored sperm to Ayla so she could use it to get pregnant. And I understand that that decision was just handed down recently, in in June this year. What did the court decide? In Queensland, this type of application had never been taken to that second step. There had been a couple of other matters where people had applied to the court for urgent orders to remove the sperm. And basically the sperm was kept on ice, so to speak, until such time as the court grants further orders for the individual to be able to use that sperm for IVF purposes. The second application that you just referred to, that was us taking it to that next step in terms of applying to the court and and asking the court for permission to be able to use that sperm um, for IVF purposes. And that's essentially what we got. The court granted Ayla the right to use the sperm for IVF purposes and also to, I guess, do certain things with it, transferred from IVF organisations, etc. So, as I understand it, the court decided that it had to find that the initial removal was legal. It said, yes, under the Queensland Transplantation and Anatomy Act 1979, you can remove tissue for a medical purpose, such as organ transplants or storage and this falls within that category. Is the sperm now property that can now be, if you like, transferred from one person to another or to Ayla? And it says yes, it was transformed by work and skill from tissue into property. And can the sperm be used to create a child? Yes, that's okay according to Queensland law. What was very interesting, David Ruo, was that court in its decision, the judge talked about a range of kind of complex legal ethical questions. It talked about the best interests of the child. It, what, yes. what did it say about that to, to a child being born in these circumstances? Yes, because there is no act in Queensland governing the use of sperm after one has passed. Uh, we applied to the court's discretionary powers for such orders. Some of these factors they were looking at, I guess, a range being where does Ayla fit biologically? I mean, how is her body suited for having children? They looked at um, her financial capability. Is she in a position to raise a child? Does she have um, family support? I mean, is this something that Ayla is doing herself or does she have support of her family? And in relation to the best interests of a child, so we were looking at how would the child be raised? What questions, you know, way the child be asking in the future about, you know, where is my father? What happened to my father? What plans are for raising a children? So we addressed all these questions so the court can be satisfied that it would be in the best interest of the child to grant us this order. And that was the finding of the judge here? Correct, yes. What did the court have to say about the fact that Joshua had ended his own life? It actually didn't draw too much of a conclusion to that fact at all. The court was more interested in terms of what would Josh have wanted in this situation? Had Josh expressed any, uh, I guess, desire before his passing in terms of what did he want for a child? The court was more interested in that. The court actually gave very little weight to the fact that he ended his life. As I understand it, the court said, look, he he clearly expressed an intention to have a child. He did suffer from depression and, he, of course, he did end his own life. But there was no suggestion that he was unhappy in his relationship or had had changed his intention about having a child or his hope to have a child. Yes, that's correct. He was, I guess, a, uh, a very family-orientated person. He wanted to have children and, essentially, for whatever reason, he decided 
decided to um, end his life. People listening to this, they'll have many, many questions, but, but one of them will be perhaps if someone tragically chooses to end their own life, they aren't going ahead with becoming a parent, that they're making that choice. And that state of play should be left as is. Yes, look, that's a good question. I guess my point of view is a little bit different in that when something happens that a person makes a decision to end their own life, they're in a state of mind which is not their their normal position. They've been pushed to a point for whatever reason, whether it's um, as a result of work or other stresses, and something abnormal has affected them at that point in time to make that decision. That's not representative of their whole outlook on life. But rather, we need to look at what had they done in the weeks, the months, the years before that? What type of life had they lived? What type of desires had they expressed? What were their intentions? And do you think that there are ethical questions around creating a child when a parent has died and died from suicide? Yes. Look, one thing that I actually um, was not aware of until uh, we took on this case, it became apparent to me that there's actually quite a number, a large number of women who seek out IVF services when they're in a, a single relationship. There isn't a father. They've made that decision that they want to conceive and raise their child themselves. So from under that basis, I don't think there's a problem with people filing these applications. But as I said, when the court has to exercise its discretion, it doesn't look at any one thing. It looks at the whole, I guess, range of matters, you know, paramount being what's in the best interest of the child when coming to this decision. Lawyer David Rewo, Director of Aiden Lawyers in Toowoomba, Queensland. Let's put the law and the ethics to one side for a moment. How does a doctor actually extract sperm from a corpse? Dr Howard Smith is the Medical Director of the Westmead Fertility Centre at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. Over a 25-year career, he's carried out this procedure about 10 times and he knows of other doctors in Sydney who've also extracted sperm from corpses. Now, in all these cases, there is, of course, one common factor. Time is in short supply. From observations, when it's been done, it's uh, clearly best that the sperm be collected as soon as possible. Uh, However, it's on the record that sperm can appear to retain viability and motility for at least 36 hours. It probably declines pretty rapidly, but there are patients where sperm has been collected up to 48 hours after death and still been viable. And how exactly do you extract sperm from a dead person? With a needle, which is simply to use a needle and aspirate sperm either from the epididymis, that's the little tube outside the testis, or in fact directly from the testis. And in what sorts of situations, in what sorts of deaths are we talking about? So they've ranged from situations where the man has died because of a car accident, of a work accident, or of a sporting accident. At the time that the request comes in, it's a time of obviously high emotion for that man's partner, and often she hasn't had time to think about the consequences, but desperately wants to retain the possibility of pregnancy, particularly if that couple were already in a treatment program. And in fact, that's been the case in two situations that I'm aware of, where they'd been 
coming, attending the doctor, planning fertility treatment, and then the tragedy struck. There are others where they actually hadn't got that far down their fertility journey, but were not using contraception and were hoping pregnancy might occur, but actually hadn't got around yet to discussing that with their doctor or, or anybody else. So a wide range of situations, but it, it, it's obviously a very unexpected and high emotion situation when this happens. When you've been in these situations or come across these, these grieving families, has it always been clear-cut? Has everybody been on the same page or have you had, I don't know, a partner tell you one thing and maybe parents or siblings tell you another thing? Uh, fortunately, I have not, but I, I, I'm certainly aware that that's happened, where there's been... Uh, a disagreement between the partner of the man and the parents of that man. I, I'm aware that that's been a situation, but I've not had personal experience of having to deal with that. Quite the contrary, in fact, in the few situations where there have been more than just one party involved, you know, there's been parents and other family members in all situations, they've been all totally in favour and requesting it and you know, assisting the partner in any way they can to facilitate this to happen. Dr Howard Smith, the medical director of the Westmead Fertility Centre at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. On RN, Radio Australia News Radio, or of course available as a podcast, this is The Law Report. I'm Damien Kerrick. We heard before about the recent Ayla Creswell decision in Queensland. Well, last July there was also the Chapman decision in New South Wales. The Chapman ruling highlights the more complicated legal situation in that state and in some other parts of Australia. You see, unlike Queensland, New South Wales has a specific piece of legislation which governs artificial reproductive technology. And this legislation requires written consent of any sperm donor. Professor Cameron Stewart is a medical legal expert based at the University of Sydney. The Chapman decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court involved a young couple named Joel and Yoshiko Chapman. They'd been married for a couple of years. They were considering having a family, as young couples do, after the first couple of years of establishing their married relationship. They were then looking forward to moving forward and, and having a family. They'd made a number of steps towards that, including taking out private health insurance and getting themselves ready for parenthood. And uh, Yushiko had spoken to her GP about preparing herself for pregnancy as well. What happened in March 2018? In March, it was discovered that Joel had a very serious condition which related to fistulas in the membrane of his brain and it was going to require very serious surgery. So he'd undergone that surgery um, late in March and unfortunately during that surgery he'd suffered a very large stroke and that had destroyed the capacity of his brain and he was declared to be brain dead. He was declared to be dead, I think, at 10am on the 29th of March. What happened at 4pm on that day? At 4pm, there was a request made by his wife to extract sperm from his dead body. Okay, so after extraction and storage, Yoshiko was required to go to the Supreme Court of New South Wales to obtain access to that sperm. Now, the New South Wales Supreme Court has recently ruled that she is entitled to that sperm, but what were the arguments for and against handing her that sperm? Part of the problem and the complexity of the case is the statutory framework in which assisted reproduction happens in New South Wales. 
So since 2010, we've had a legislative framework which regulates the ac access and, and treatments under um, what we used to call IVF. And that act actually says and requires that any taking and extraction of any gamete, sperm or, or egg, must be done with written consent. And the, the use of that to make an embryo and to implant it for the purposes of having a child also has to be done with written consent. Now, one of the other things the Act does is it talks about the use of gametic material after a person dies. And it very clearly says that you can't use that material unless the deceased has given express written consent to that use. Okay, so that's what the state of the law is in New South Wales. What did the judge do in this case? The judge looked at that law and, and firstly considered the question of whether there was a power to approve for the extraction of the sperm. And there's a very long series of cases that have happened all around Australia concerning those types of principles. And then the second point the judge had to consider was now that it had been extracted and it had been preserved, whether it was a form of property which Mrs Chapman could then take out of the jurisdiction to use uh, effectively to have a baby because she didn't have written consent from her husband to use it in New South Wales. So what does the judge do? Decides that it, in fact it is property and hands it over to her? What does he do? Well, that's part of the, the interesting thing about the case. And so on the first question about whether there was a power to extract the sperm, the judge found that there was no such power. But nevertheless, because it had been extracted and had now become a piece of property, the second question could be answered affirmatively. So even though it shouldn't have been taken out, it was now a piece of property. It had formed part of his estate and she was the appropriate person to have control over it. She could take it out of New South Wales. And take it to another jurisdiction, what, where there isn't this requirement for consent by the donor before the sperm or the egg is used? Exactly. So, you know, the miracle of Federation is that we have laws in all of our jurisdictions that sometimes differ dramatically. And in the area of assisted reproduction, there's very few states that have actually legislated for its regulation. And ACT is one of the jurisdictions that hasn't regulated it in the form of statute. There's no laws which prevent the use of sperm being taken without consent. Many people go to the ACT in these cases then to go through the process of having the baby. So really interesting. So the take-home message in the media was widow gets access to sperm of deceased husband, but this case really doesn't pave the way for others in New South Wales in this situation. And if I understand it, it actually makes it harder than it had previously been. If we follow what Justice Fagan says, it shuts the door and it prevents the extraction from happening now, which I think is a concern because it, it certainly goes against the earlier authority that we had from other judges, uh, including Justice Hume's decision in a case called Re Edwards in 2011. And Judge Fagan in this recent uh, Chapman case is urging the New South Wales Parliament to kind of clarify, to legislate a clear rule to clear up what he regards as a grey area. And, and that makes sense too, doesn't it? Sort of saying, look, what are we going to do here? This is his law as I understand it. If you want to make it different you need to spell it out. Exactly, and I think it's a, a very sensible thing that the judge is asking for. The, the question about the response is where it becomes more difficult because one response might be just to maintain status quo, which I don't think is going to solve this problem, but there may be then alternatively a number of other responses, but they could be difficult. They're morally and ethically difficult questions and they involve the main constituents of all great drama, which is sex and death. And those things are not easy to legislate. Coming back to the kind of the big picture issues, I mean, 
So sperm these days and eggs these days, they can be considered property. Is there any consideration or should there be any consideration maybe for the children who might be born in these circumstances? Should there be any conversation around those sorts of issues? Some of the legislation that deals about these issues more generally talks about principles. And so we can see this in the New South Wales Act and we can see it in the Victorian legislation, for example. And they will talk about the rights of future children having to be taken into account by regulators. And as a general principle, it seems to be fine. It's when it becomes specific that it becomes problematic because these things are ephemeral and they're incredibly difficult to measure, particularly when the child is not in existence. So we, unfortunately, I think, and I hesitate to criticise judges, but I think there's been a couple of judges that have really gone to town, for example, on the partners of these deceased men and said, you're not thinking about future children, you're not thinking about how terrible it will be for a child to be born without a father, and so that's a reason why I'm not going to let you do this. And I think that that type of reasoning is terrible. And because of that, people's choices about reproduction should be free. And that's the cost of living in a free society is that we don't get to tell each other about how we have babies and the choice we make to have children or generally how we raise them. That's what it means to be free. I, don't, I might not like people living in homosexual relationships, so I might not want them to have children. Well, you know what? That's not my call because we live in a free society. I might not like people that are older than 40 having children because I think that they're too old. Again, that's not my call. I could have that feeling myself. It's a rule I can make for myself, but we don't allow those types of rules to be made for everyone else because that's not what we do. In other countries, they do. I don't think we want to go there, but that's certainly what that type of reasoning leads to. You start to make judgments about people's future parenting in the absence of any evidence, and that's, I think, objectionable. And we need to be really careful about getting rid of uh, or eroding people's ability to choose to have babies, particularly merely because it makes us feel uncomfortable. This particular method of having a child makes us feel uncomfortable. But when we're talking about, you know, an assessment, which some of these judges have made, which is to say this child shouldn't be born because they won't have a father, I think that's kind of bad harm assessment. I think that's something we could legitimately criticise. And the more recent decisions do that, actually. They accept that that's not a legitimate way of making these decisions. So Cameron Stewart, let's go back to the very big picture. So some of this legislation requires consent, right? So in places like WA and in New South Wales in the Chapman case, you need, under the Assisted Reproductive Technology Act, you need consent. What do you think is the best approach? Do we ignore that law? Do we change that law? What would you say is the way forward here? I suppose my first point of call would be to follow what Justice Fagan says and and let's fix the legislation. Either way, my own view is that these these are choices that are not going to be able to made through consent because in all of these cases, the men are dying unexpectedly. So they haven't got to the point where they can sign a form. For example, in Edward's case, it's probably the most tragic. They were going to the IVF clinic the day after he died. So he died a day before they were about to sign the form. And I think they'd even been to the IVF clinics a few times before that. They had. Um, they'd been, they had the consultations. They'd done everything. So they were well along the way of getting written consent, but it just hadn't happened yet. So requiring written consent, I think, is not going to solve the problem. These cases will still happen. So then we might fall back on a, 
a broader idea of consent. My idea would be to say, why don't we let the partners have access to the sperm, except in cases when the deceased has clearly said no. Let's reverse it and require evidence of refusal. Interesting. I can't imagine a partner coming forward and saying, yes, my partner didn't want to have kids. No, but you might find that there's another relative, a brother, a sister, who will give that evidence. And one of the features of particularly of the of the Edwards case is the family support. So they will speak to families and families certainly would have standing in these cases. But you're saying in Australia, in most parts of Australia, we're still left very much in a grey zone. We're still at the point where we've got conflicting pieces of legislation. We have the judges trying to resolve the dispute that's before them. They're trying to do their best. Some form of clarity is going to be needed, I think, and some resolution of these uh, conflicting pieces of legislation that really can only be the parliament that's ultimately going to resolve this. And my view would be it would be better if the parliament took away the laws. But I don't think that's going to happen. Parliaments tend not to say that it's better to leave things up to the common law. They like to legislate. If we get any movement, I think it will be towards more formalisation of consent and, and putting in new consent procedures. Professor Cameron Stewart, based at the University of Sydney Law School. So let's go back to Toowoomba, Queensland. What did Ayla Creswell do after the court ruled in her favour in June last year? Lawyer David Rio. I think our advice to her was just to, look, let the dust settle and when you're ready, you make whatever decision that you feel is right for you. And that's basically what Layla's done. We haven't had too much contact with Ayla and I just know that she's considering her options and just when she's ready, I'm sure she'll do what, what she thinks is right for her. As I've been discovering over the last week, there have certainly been a surprisingly large number of cases involving the removal of sperm from deceased men. But your case because it involves a man who ended his own life, sounds like one in a million. But in fact, you had acted for another grieving spouse in exactly the same situation. Look, that's correct. It was amazing to think Toowoomba, which is you know a smaller city in Queensland, could have two of these cases. We acted in the Leith Patterson matter some 12 months before Ayla, which was very similar. They were living in a de facto relationship. Her partner ended his life and uh, Leith came to us, I guess, in the in the wee hours of the night as well, which was another urgent application. So it was amazing to think that after the Leith-Patterson matter that we would come to Ayla, and after speaking to Ayla, Ayla had never heard of the Leith-Patterson case. It was completely um, unknown to her. So these applications, they're, they're virtually rare as hen's teeth. So it was just amazing that two people come to us. So Leith Patterson comes to you to, to, to get the OK to extract the sperm from her dead partner. I think it was Tony Bryan Dean. Yes, that's... Mm. But did she go on to part two to obtain she possession? She hasn't, no, not as of yet. That's We're, interesting. Yes, I think going on to the second stage, it's it's a very big decision. First one, you have to act very quickly within that short period of time after death. But for the second application, I think that takes a lot of time, a lot of planning, as well as, you know, you have to be, I guess, ready emotionally. Leith, at this point in time, she hasn't made the decision to proceed. That decision doesn't come as any surprise to fertility expert Dr Howard Smith. Oh, yeah, look, certainly... In fact, there have been the majority situations where they've not wanted to use it. Obviously, there are others where they've desperately wanted to use it. And in fact, as you know, some have gone on and, and successfully used that sperm. But the majority, in my experience, after a period of time, reconsider. And as time goes by and they've had 
a chance to think more in the cold light of dawn, so to speak, they have chosen not to use it. Dr Howard Smith, the Medical Director of the Westmead Fertility Centre at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. That's the program for this week. Now, if this program has brought up any issues for you, contact Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. A big thanks to producer Fiona Pepper and to sound engineer Selwyn Cousins. I'm Damien Carrick and I'm looking forward to talking to you next week with a fresh new year of The Law Report. <laughs> 